Thank you so much, Hillary. The wheat and the weeds, the church and the world. You can advance it one slide. There's a classic painting of this. There it is. Okay, let me tell you what we're going to do. Is I am here next week for Labor Day week. I am going to be back in Maine to to tend to business related to property and other things, and then. I will be back after that. But what I decided to do is, this Matthew 13 is amazing. And I'm going to do a series. I'm going to preach the whole chapter. It's called Parables of the Kingdom. Matthew has six. Mark has one that only he has. So I made that in as a seventh bonus track. And then I believe we'll get into Galatians. But what I want to encourage you to do is... Meditate on that chapter as you're able. So, for instance, we looked at the parable of the sower, which was about the sower sowing the seed and the different responses, and the point was, you're going to sow the Word of God. Most of the people are not going to be interested in what you have to say. But don't give up. Keep on sowing because the Lord will bring his fruit. And in that parable, Jesus tells the parable, there's an interlude, and then he gives the explanation. In this particular one, the wheat and the weeds, we skipped the interlude. I'll take that up next time. But he does the same thing. He gives the parable. He tells something else. Then the disciples come because they didn't get it, and they say, Would you explain what that means for us? And isn't that a good thing if we didn't get it the first time? He says, here's the story. Let me tell you what it means. So that's what we're going to do. And so what I want to do is just enjoy the parable, understand the story, and then we will draw some implications. But what this gets at is the relationship of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world in which the evil one in the background is working all kinds of mayhem in ways you cannot totally understand. You know that I love movies, and one of my favorite movies is a, it's a modern film noir called The Usual Suspect, and it's one of those things you see it and there's a massive twist at the end. Oh, i got to go watch that again. But one of the big lines out of that is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And in this dynamic, the evil one is working in the kingdom of this world in ways we can't understand. But we want to try to see how do we live as kingdom people in response to that. So I want to enjoy the parable for a minute. Now, this means a lot to me because, as I told you, I grew up in the world of agriculture. I think I've told you before that my father is a Canadian citizen. He always was a Canadian citizen. But they moved, they lived in Canada and they moved to the Northeast, ultimately to Maine, where I spent a lot of my growing up years. He always wanted to be a farmer, but instead he got a PhD in plant physiology. But his life work 
was agriculture, working with wheat, developing better strains of wheat. But in our backyard, we had a massive garden. In the Northeast, you don't have this red clay. You have this rich, dark soil. I would go back, and every year the garden got bigger, which meant that my wiffle ball field got smaller, which I didn't like. But he would plant tomato plants, but he would plant cucumber seeds, zucchini seeds, he did some sunflower seeds for me just for fun. But man, those tomatoes were amazing. He would put pesticide on them to keep the bugs away. And I'm sure you're not allowed to use the kind of pesticide he used back then. But he also loved to work in his yard. The McCray yard was literally a perfect yard. Are you jealous of that? house in the neighborhood that has the perfect lawn, that was our lawn. He spent hours pulling up weeds, planting grass to make it better, and it was this beautiful, rich, green fescue. And so I watched him planting seeds, but weeds would grow up, bugs would come, and he'd constantly pull them up with his little pen knife so that he would have the perfect lawn. That is similar to what's going on here, is that, let's just talk about the parable, is that Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a man who sowed good seed in the field. We assume this is wheat being cast. You have a big plowed field, and then the farmer would go out, and they didn't have the big combines of and, and uh, electronic seeds, gas-powered seed spreaders, you took a bag and a sack and you just started sowing seeds. And you'd hope it would rain. And so he sowed good seed in the field, and over time, that wheat would grow up. But then he said, while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds in the field. Now, that's a bit unusual, but there were some weeds in that day which looked a lot like wheat, just as in your yard there might be weeds that kind of look like grass, like crabgrass kind of looks like grass, but it's not. It's horrible. So, the, the, someone came maliciously and sowed the weeds among the wheat, and the two grow up together. They grow up to maybe three feet, and sometimes you can't distinguish them. But the servants can see it, and they see, man, we've got a mess here. We've got this beautiful wheat, but we also have all of these weeds, it's in, and it's interspersed. So what should we do? Where did these come from? And the man said, well, an enemy did this. An enemy came and sowed these weeds. Well, shall we go and just pull them up? And that would have been hard to do. It would be like pulling up individual wheat stalks. And he said, no. If these things look so much alike... 
that if you try to pull the weeds out, you're going to pull the weed up too because they're just indistinguishable. They're just so much together. What we'll do is we're just going to let them both grow together. And then at the harvest time, I'll tell the harvesters, then you separate them, collect the the weeds, tie them into bundles to be burned because we don't need them, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barns. Is that fairly clear what's happening? We're going to wait until harvest time to separate them. But the key thing is you can't wipe out one now because if you wipe out one, you'll take out both. Now, I'm not the best gardener, so would you like to hear how I did this this year? I did this. Is that in our yard, I love, I inherited the agricultural gene from my father. I, it's very therapeutic for me to work in the yard. We have pretty good grass. I've got Bermuda that's gradually taking over the fescue. And I've got some flowers. But there's just all kinds of weeds. You know what we've got? We've got, every time I go away to Maine for three weeks, and I come back, and my house is overtaken with vines. <laughs> Poison ivy, and that, the horrible thing. Do you have, any of you have English ivy in your backyard? That stuff will take over anything. It's hard to pull out. The only way to get it is to spray it with the thorough brush killer and let it kill the roots. Now, here's where I have to be careful because I buy bottles of concentrate and I put them in a big tank and I spray them. I've got two bottles. One of them is kills the weed but not the grass, right? The other says kills everything. And you'd better not get them mixed up. Because <laughs> if you use the hard stuff, it's killing everything. So what I did was, there's these vines growing in my front yard. And I thought, I'm going to just shoot it on these vines. And my bushes are just three feet back here, and we should be okay. Well, that stuff's powerful. The brush killer went over to the weeds, and I just killed off all my bushes, too. Because I took them all out together. Now, as it turns out, it's okay because they're horrible anyway, and I'm going to pull them up and have someone relandscape it. But I literally took out the good with the bad. I'm a terrible gardener. I'm not like my dad. So I literally did that. Okay, so what does it mean? Well, the disciples come to him and said, we, we get the story, but what does it mean? And he says, well, let me interpret it for you. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, which is, of course, him. And the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. So you in this room who are in Christ, you're the good seed planted by the Son of Man, by Jesus Christ. His word has been implanted in you, and you are part of his kingdom. That's us, right? Well, the field is the world, and then the weeds 
are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So you have a very familiar concept of, and this goes right back to the beginning, where there are essentially two lines of people. The people of God who are in Christ through the new birth, through the word of God and the gospel being implanted in them. But you also have the people of this world, of various generations, lifestyles, ages, who are in the kingdom of darkness. And in some way, the evil one is involved there. So you've got these two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms of people grow up together. We live in a world in which it isn't just Christians, people of the kingdom, but it's people of the kingdom and people of the kingdom that isn't of Christ. Your neighborhood consists of that. Your school consists of that. In other words, as a Christian, you don't live in an isolated bubble, but you live right together with the people of this world. And various things happen. And it's going to be this way until Christ comes again. And so in your life, you're going to see all kinds of things happening that you might not like because the people of the, of the world live differently than us. Of course they do because they're not in Christ. But get used to it because that is going to be the case until the consummation, until Christ comes again. It is only later that God will sort it out and separate those who belong to him and those who don't, and each will go to their eternal destiny. And for the most part, you can tell which is which, but you can't always, can you? You can't always. So that's the basic parable. And so, just for a few minutes, what lessons are we to draw from this? Because this is incredibly important and incredibly helpful. And let me just draw the main point, and I want to bring some implications, okay? Is that the main thing we're to take away is that on earth are essentially two kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and then the kingdom of this earth in which the devil is working all kinds of mayhem. This goes right back to the beginning. It started in the garden when Adam and Eve were perfect. The devil tempts them. Did God really say, well, maybe not? And so they ate the fruit, and then they start blaming one another, and then the rest is history. We live in a broken and a fallen world, but even in Genesis chapter 3, God gave the gospel promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That is the promise of Jesus Christ. We call that the proto-evangel, the first proclamation of the gospel. And did you hear that? The first proclamation of the gospel comes in Genesis chapter 3. 
They were saved in Jesus Christ, the one to come, but there would be a long wait. But the redeemed people of God were in the world, but then there were the people of of the kingdom of darkness, as we call it. For the most part, the people of the kingdom of God were the Israelites, but that wasn't always the case. And I've been thinking, you've got these two kingdoms, and how do we frame how we live in the midst of this? How do, what are the implications of this? How do we frame this? And particularly, during this time where we have a virus and the pandemic, and it looks like we're going to have another year of COVID, I mean, what are the implications of this? Let me bring out a couple as, let me bring out three as we think about the implications of what it means that we are growing up together as the seed of Christ in the middle of a world where there are many who do not belong to Christ. The first implication is this, okay? The people in the world are not the enemy, but they are in the kingdom of the enemy. Do you see that? They are not the enemy but they are in the kingdom of the enemy. Now, they don't belong to Christ, and so in a sense they're alienated from God, and that has to be rectified. But do not view the people of this world as the enemy. And this is really important, because in our day, we, we live, and it's always been this way, but we live in a very polarized time, don't we? Where everyone tends to look at other people as the enemy. So people on the political right look at people on the political left as the enemy and vice versa. We sometimes call that the culture war. And, and people are constantly at each other. You know, on the left, it might be the liberals or the pro-abortion people or the feminists. And on the right, it's the white supremacists. And it's just, it just endlessly goes back and forth. And we've gotten to the point where there's incredible animosity between the two groups. And as we've said, there are Christians on both sides of that divide for various reasons. But it is very, very easy to despise and hate people who might be on the other side of the divide as you, right? And so you don't talk to them. And so you, you, they're the enemy and on them. I wish the harvest would just come and wipe them out now. And this is very real. It's in my neighborhood, you know, you got the Black Lives Matter people and the Niagara people, and a lot of them won't talk to each other. And they view each other as enemies because we live in a polarized world and social media just ratchets it up. But the way we're to look at this is that all of us are going to have our opinions on political and cultural issues, but we can't 
solve and settle out all of that. We need to act like people in the church, and we need to see that the, the people who may differ for us are not the enemy. But as Colossians 1, 3 to 14 says, He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, what we're supposed to see is that in some sense, if people aren't in Christ, everyone, right or left, is lost. Everyone needs the gospel. Because remember, in the garden, what was the religious creed that the devil said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say that? You're supposed to be dependent on him. He didn't really mean that. Take life into your own hands. Do what you want to do. And what is the American creed? We're going to be saying the Apostles' Creed later in the service, because that is a, one of the great confessions of our faith. What is the American creed? What is the American civil religion? You have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the right for you to determine who you want to be, what you want to do, and it will take its expression in all kinds of ways, right? And you see, that is the mayhem of the devil. I'm going to completely dupe you all by making you think that this political view or that political view, that's the real enemy. It's not. The fact is, the real issue is your utter independence from God. Your total lack of submission to Him who's the sovereign God of the universe. That's everyone. That's what the devil tempted him to do. And however it's expressed, that is what we're up against. Now let me tell you something that happened just in the past couple of weeks. There's a young couple, I told you about them, there's a young couple in our neighborhood, and I've been getting to know them. They're, I, I think they're kind of on the political left side of the spectrum, and they're kind of in a culture war with their neighbor who is on the right side, and you, you know the typical things, they're, they're fighting about politics and whatnot. I make it my goal to transcend that and to try to engage everyone. And they know I'm a Presbyterian minister. That's never come up. But we talk about music and football and this and that. And, and we've never really talked about the gospel. But when you begin to sow the word, little conversations tend to become bigger ones. And I try to do my best to show that I'm just like them, I'm not holier than thou. And while I was in Maine, the wife sent me this message saying, lupus has attacked my body and I'm just falling apart. And can we talk to you about this? Well, I got a message, it was actually this morning, and she said, do you do house blessings? We're desperately in need of one. Now, I haven't done a house blessing, but you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over and I'm going to lay hands and pray for her and pray the blessing. I don't know if they're Christians or not. But I'm going to pray 
the blessing of God on her life and on them as a family that that God would work. I don't think they're believers. But you see how this, look at this, boy, it, it, it went fast. You see, she's someone who is suffering under the curse of the fall, right? It affects your body. And it has leveled her to the point of dependence. I can't control my life anymore. And when you come to that point, now you're ready to listen to God, right? You're ready to listen to what the Father and the Gospel might say. Their neighbor views them as the enemy. How we're to view them is, here's someone who's facing the horrible results of the curse of the law. They don't know how to interpret it, but I can come in and begin to sow good seed. You see? And I I think I'm going to stop by there today. Because it sounds really bad. Do you do house blessings? What an opportunity. And I'll figure out the right thing to say. We desperately need it. Well, I'll bring Christ. They are being, she's being victimized by the physical pain, but is now opening up. So, we don't view others as the enemy, but as people in need who in all kinds of ways are being affected by the effects of what the devil has done, physical disease being one of them. So that's the first thing. And the second is this, and this is really important, is that as we engage the people of the world, particularly in this time of the virus, they need to be seeing repentance and great humility from us. Let me explain what I mean. There's a text in Luke 13 that's a very interesting story, 13, 1 through 9. And it talks about a situation very similar to this pandemic. Some people come up to Jesus and they say, you know, there were some Jews offering sacrifice and Pilate killed them right while they were doing it. That would be equivalent to someone walking into a church and shooting people. It was horrible. And the Jews at their time looked at it as bad things happen to bad people, so they must have deserved it. They must have done something wrong. Jesus said, do you think they were worse than anyone else? No. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, in a sense, that's what everyone deserves. In a sense, because we're under the wrath of God and alienated from Him, that's, that's what everyone deserves. He wasn't targeting any specific group. But then Jesus pushes it further, and he talks about a natural disaster. The Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 people. Very reminiscent of what just happened in Miami, right? Where the whole building pancaked. And didn't 97 people or so die? Just a natural disaster that that no one saw coming. God was not targeting any particular group of those particular groups because they did something wrong. It's just one of those results of the fall. And Jesus said, those 18 who died, 
do you think they were more guilty than anyone else? No, unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, in a sense, this is what we all deserve. In a sense, this is what we all deserve. And, it, and the fact that there's a pandemic and a virus, I've, be, I've begun to think, what does it mean? How does Scripture frame it? Scripture does frame it. God is saying, with the swat of my finger, I can kill off 600,000 people. I can wipe out your economy. In other words, world, I'm trying to get your attention. You're not in control of your life. You are completely out of control. Are you listening? Are you listening and turning to me? And I wonder if we are. I wonder if we are. Because the response to this should not pretend that it doesn't exist, but it's to say, this is very real. I'm not in charge. That could have been me. In other words, let me frame it positively. Father, thank you for giving us so much better than we deserve. Thank you for giving us so much better than we deserve. A plague, a famine, a, it's a horrible thing that we wouldn't wish on anyone. But our response should be, Father, thank you for giving us so much better than we deserve that leads to humility and repentance and trust that we can bring to people. And now finally this. And I won't have time for everything, but I want to say this. Is that in living in the two kingdoms, what people need to see from us is caring ministry. Let me tell you one of the things that I'm concerned about with the virus, and I have friends who've told me this, is that many churches are going to erupt into a conflict for yet another year over whether or not they should wear masks. And I'm, I just, I, it's just going to happen. And part of what I hear people say is, you, I have the right not to wear this. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. And I understand people see things differently. The reason we're wearing masks is simply to keep one another safe. We're not making a political statement. But what concerns me is the idea, I, my right. When you follow Jesus, you relinquish all your rights. You relinquish all your rights. It is not about that. And in 2 Corinthians, this is very interesting because in Acts chapter 11, a man named Agabus prophesies a famine. They had that. A pandemic is kind of like a famine where it just wipes out the, the economy, people can't eat. And so, what did Paul do? They didn't whine and moan about oppressive governments, and they, and, and they didn't talk about their rights, but they, they gathered up a collection of food for the poor. People are in horrible need. And we are going to 
serve them. And we're not going to moan about our rights. And, and, and I'm sure the government had to ration food and they didn't get mad at the government for rationing food. They just said, we as people of the kingdom are going to, out of generosity, feed the Jerusalem saints who do not have anything. Because this pandemic is an opportunity for us to be people of the kingdom, to serve self-sacrificially, just like it says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And because of that, we're going to lay down our rights. We're not going to insist on our right to live this way or that way. We're going to give sacrificially. We're going to serve people who are in desperate need. Maybe it'll be bringing medical care or food or giving. This is why the church is here. Do we understand this? For such a time, the world needs us more than ever. People are hurting. People are dying. And this is a time for us to show the world the kingdom value is that life is not about us. We live in submission to Christ. We give up our rights to serve. And I want to encourage you to think, how might the Lord use you to be extra generous as Christ who gave up his rights to serve you? We can't fix the... I wish we could fix the world now, but we can't. That will only come when Christ returns. But up until then, let's be people of the kingdom who are living in humility, thanking the Lord for treating us far better than we deserve and serving other people in some way in this horrible time of deprivation in a way that they will see, my goodness, what selflessness that I want to learn more about this Christ and this kingdom. Can we do that together? That is what Christ has done for us. Amen. I want 